0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of
1: Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I have the privilege today of having a conversation with my friend and colleague, Dr. Peter J. Mawish. Welcome, Peter, to the Beeson Podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Now, you have been a professor at Beeson Divinity School for five years. It's hard for me to believe those five years have just gone <laughs> by. Tell us a little bit about who you are, where you came from, your background.
0: I am originally from Poland. I born and raised. I grew up in a very small pocket of Lutheranism in the south of Poland. And what's unusual about that area, because at one point it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was that in that area, the Polish speakers were generally Lutheran, whereas the German speakers were Catholic. And I grew up in a Lutheran family, nourished by all kinds of stories of Lutheran survival, especially in the days of the counter-reformation. And those certainly shaped the stories of, to some degree, martyrdom, but also oppression. And preservation of the faith. It really shaped my childhood. Uh, I heard lots of them from my, especially my grandparents and then parents. So you did seminary here in the States at
1: Fort Wayne. Correct, at Concordia Theological Seminary. Which is a school in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. That's right. And from there, you went to Harvard Divinity School, where I also studied in an earlier generation, <laughs> let us say. So how does a Missouri Synod Lutheran from
0: Poland thrive at Harvard? That's a very good question. Uh I think Harvard is one of those environments where even though the prevalent theology or theologies uh, are in a more liberal key, but I also experience Harvard as a place where um, there is respect for learning Mm -hmm. and respect for ideas, for the ability to defend your position and your ideas. And, And in that sense, I was very privileged to work with people who I may not always have seen eye-to-eye with, like uh, Ron Theiman, my advisor, uh, Mm -hmm. Sarah Coakley, Francis Fiorenza, David Lamberth, uh, very good scholars and scholars that I felt challenged and sharpened by. And uh, I think it was a great experience after Concordia, and Beeson has been an even better experience. At Harvard, you actually worked on a
1: 20th century theologian, still living, Eberhard Jungel. Correct. Say just a little bit about what you did with Jungel, a major voice in theology in the recent decades.
0: I think what really drew me to Jungel is, to some degree, a similar context that he came out of, a context similar to mine, in the sense that Jungel, while he grew up in, or at least his childhood fell in Nazi Germany, he's, he, he really was a young man in uh, communist Germany. And I think the theme of freedom, both as a reality that com- God communicates to us, but also as something that that belongs to our humanity as God's gift uh, was really very important for my thinking. I think that's what originally drew me to Jungel. I was also drawn to the, the rigor with which he thinks theologically. You know how important the tradition is for him, but on the on the on the other, it is to imaginatively imaginatively recover and resource that tradition for our issues of today. So, I mean, to give an example, Jungle talks about the doctrine of justification as something that really touches not only our salvation, or concerns not only our salvation, but also concerns our very personhood. Because what justification expresses is a fundamental separation between person and works, that a person is not made or is not the sum total of our works, but rather that a person has dignity and that that, that dignity is bestowed. Primarily by God, but it's also then recognized by each other. And 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 therefore Jungel can argue that the Reformation inside on justification by faith without the works of the law is really something that modern society that's so obsessed with achievement and the definition of persons on the basis of achievement needs to hear. That our society needs spaces, but it in which to recognize that People are not simply workers. It needs the Sabbath, but it also needs to protect some of the most vulnerable who either can no longer achieve or have not achieved anything yet, like uh, the unborn or children and the elderly.
1: You mentioned uh, Jungel and justification. Uh, The one name I suppose most people associate with the doctrine of justification in the history of the Christian church, if we leave St. Paul out of it for a minute, would be Martin Luther. Now, you are Lutheran, but you also have recently edited a book called Luther Refracted, The Reformer's Ecumenical Legacy. And I want to talk a little bit about this book. I think it's a remarkable uh, presentation that you have done here with a, a colleague, uh, Derek Nelson. You are the two editors of this volume, Luther Refracted, The Reformer's Ecumenical Legacy, uh, which is published by Fortress Press. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about this book, how you came to write it, what What you mean by
0: refracted, for one thing. I mean, fundamentally, what the book, recognizes is that Luther is a very complex personality both as a man but also as a theologian but that his history in the Christian tradition is a very complex history, history of reception and and insofar as he is in a way uh, one of the reformers, perhaps the father of the Reformation, his reception in the various Christian denominations that claim the legacy of the Reformation but also his reception in Roman Catholicism, you know, is never straightforward and is very polyphonic, and hence the title Refracted, that already in his lifetime there was a recognition that the volume of Luther's work was incredibly immense, that he, he was a theologian who was very much a theologian in action. He spoke to all kinds of contexts, uh, all kinds of situations. Sometimes um, Luther could, can be quoted against himself, and that's, that's, that's really remarkable. So, so already at that very, that very kind of basic theological level, um, Luther is in no way as simply categorized Person, uh, but then, like I said, his uh, his own his own legacy is is also his own reception is is um, is a refracted kind of reception. Um, so, what motivated the volume was the conviction that Luther is not just an important person historically, and therefore we have to sort of give an account of him, but rather that he, because of these various types of engagements, because of how he has continued to live, sometimes. Um, obliquely, and not necessarily always uh, given credit in these various denominations, is, is to sort of uh, tease out what it means for Luther to function as a teacher of the church um, who, has, who speaks in these multiple voices refracted through the various um, uh, Christian denominations.
1: One of the things I like about this book is the fact that you include in a very, I think, clever way so many different voices, but there's interactivity. There's, mm-hmm. It's a kind of dialogical project Correct. in a way. Let me just mention some of the names, and you could say something about them. For example, the Roman Catholic theologians here, mm-hmm. in particular, Jared Wicks, who's a major Jesuit thinker and scholar of Luther. Mm-hmm. I remember reading his book, Man Yearning for Grace, many years ago when I was just an undergraduate. Continues to be a prolific mm. thinker, and uh, he's one of the people that you have here. David Tracy is another, who's a name very well known. Uh, Susan Wood is a Catholic theologian. Mm-hmm. She's a contributor. So ecumenical, Luther's ecumenical legacy – Sometimes Reformation and ecumenism are not seen as uh, (laughs) coterminous. (laughs) Say a little bit about this word and how it applies to Luther in your project.
0: I mean, on the one hand, I think you're right that Luther as a man was not necessarily the the most ecumenical of people, at least stereotypically speaking. Uh, We all know about his uncompromising encounter with Zwingli at Marburg. Um, On the other hand, a lot of the things that Luther wrote, beginning with his – thesis, his 95 thesis on indulgences, and even as late as uh, his 15 his 1537 smuggled articles were really written as documents for ecumenical encounter, for ecumenical conversation. Luther was interested in, in conversation. But apart from that, I think what really motivates the choice of Luther uh, at an even deeper level than the one that I've already spoken of, that he is sort of a theologian that seems to have been received in multiple ways, is that both Derek Nelson, who is a co-editor of this volume and I were convinced that there are other ways of doing ecumenism and the kind of ecumenism that we wanted to push back against a little bit was the sort of ecumenism where people get together and they, they figured out points of convergence and then decide whether what divides them matters or doesn't matter so it, it, we, we did not want to do this kind of what I would call maybe lowest common denominator ecumenism. We wanted to choose a person that some people claim, that many people claim in various ways, and that some people are challenged by and push respectfully, perhaps not so respectfully, against. And by allowing us as Lutherans, that is Derek and myself, but then also our three Lutheran respondents, to hear how others Receive Luther and claim him in that kind of polyphonic richness that he offers. We wanted to recognize that, but also wanted to be challenged in our own Lutheranism. That is to to in a way reclaim our own roots and our own legacy through others' engagement with um, the figure of the reformer. And so I think there was the learning afforded by the figure of Luther was much richer than, like I said, this sort of ecumenism where you simply figure out what yeah. w- you know what where the divergence lies and where the conver- convergence happens.
1: There is this uh, whole effort in in Luther studies to recover the Catholic Luther, for Mm -hmm. example. Um, David Yago has written about this, a a very important article, and others have understood Luther. And Mm -hmm. I I would say I would put myself in this camp to some extent. Luther understood himself to be uh, a, a theologian of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Correct. Didn't want to start from scratch all over again, but to take the wonderful... Gift God has given the church in the scriptures and the in the confessions and in a way um, let them shine mm-hmm. without all of the obscurities and so forth and so that in- inherently is an ecumenical project right. isn't it? it it is it,
0: it, very, it very much is um, I mean I've already described Luther as a doctor of the church, and I think that's that's the way he he should be seen. Um, Luther certainly never left the Church of Rome. He was excommunicated in 1521. Um, But um, I think as the later Lutheran tradition shows but also the reformed tradition, uh, we still regard ourselves as the church not only of Irenaeus but also the church for example of Thomas Aquinas. um, that, That all of these are important voices within the tradition that somehow and sometimes clash uh, but actually, voice a lot of convergence, and uh, you know luther 's obviously uncompromising project had to do with you know magnifying Christ, sort yes. of allowing Christ to shine, um, and there was a particular way in which he thought that could happen in the context in which he worked and it's very it 's very encouraging um, to see people like Jared Wicks who i 've also learned tremendously from i mean he devoted over forty years of his life, fifty years I think, to studying. Luther to recovering dimensions of Luther that perhaps Lutherans would be inclined to overlook mm-hmm. but also to um, to really learn i mean to really learn from Luther you know Jared talks about his initial approach to Luther as a very critical kind of approach where Luther sort of appeared through this stereotype of faith alone understood as if faith itself were just a feat of Believing that you know, believers performed almost in spite of everything, and I in and it, it, almost as if faith were a kind of a pair of glasses that you put on, and you you had at each and every moment to make a decision about whether or not you chose to see the world through the through the eyes of faith or um, or in some other way, but uh, that's more of an existentialist picture of Luther, and I think a picture that was very much current in mid twentieth century Catholic theology, but what Jared Wicks discovered and came to recognize also with through his collaboration with people like Oswald Bayer is that, for example, the sacraments and church life play a very important part in luther 's theology that that the believer is never just sort of a sole believer like i said performing performing this feat of believing, mm. but rather that um, Luther has a very strong sense of the objectivity of God's action, and in that sense, I think he belongs more to the Middle Ages than perhaps um, even figures like Zwingli or Calvin. Um, he emphasizes uh, the reality, the tangibility, the objectivity of God's action outside of faith, and faith for Luther then becomes that which grasps that reality and makes it efficacious for one. Um, so it's certainly not the the kind of isolated believer uh, that that we get in Luther's theology, and 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 Jared in his chapter in this volume, uh, narrates that journey sort of, uh, and is a very good example of how if one approaches Luther with an open mind, one is one is not only challenged, but also surprised. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for us as Lutherans, on the other hand, I mean, we are also in for a surprise there because um, uh, Jared has also taught us that for example grace for luther is not simply favor as we usually think of grace but it has a kind of a healing dimension and that 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 dimension that of, of the theology of grace is, pre- is present in luther's theology as well
1: you know this focus on faith as an act of human believing when that's taken to in a certain way It actually turns justification by faith alone into a kind of justification by works. Mm -hmm. And it's a very thin line, I think, between what Luther was trying to do to emphasize – I think you're 100 percent right – the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. That's the core of Luther's spirituality and theology. But it's a fine line between emphasizing that and Mm -hmm. lapsing into a kind of – got to say the right words in the right way. Um, mm-hmm. you, you've got to believe in it with a certain kind of intensity, uh-huh. so that becomes a kind of uh, justification mm-hmm. by works.
0: My right. works, right? Uh, uh, and I think Matt Jen, uh, Jensen in this volume addresses that from a from an evangelical perspective. Uh, he he talks. He draws on Luther's commentary on Galatians to critique uh, this sort of thin notion of faith as if faith had to first make itself into a something to then make God available to itself. And you inevitably sort of end up with psychologizing your faith. You try to, um, and the point here is, and I think this is, this is um, in a sense, surprising about Luther because one can imagine that for Luther, faith does not have, and it doesn't always have to have this self-reflective dimension. That is, you don't have to Catch your faith before you sort of bring it before God, but rather faith is almost like a hand it's like a medium through which you grasp, and it's even conceivable that a believer may not know that the believer believes the believer simply trusts that 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 dimension of self reflexivity is not necessary. I think it's important to Luther because Luther certainly uh, wanted to challenge this kind of notion that the sacraments or the word works ex opera operato by the mere performance of the act he wanted to emphasize that it is only in faith that things become salutary for us but but he would also i think push back against this notion that yes faith that first we must assure that we have faith that we must make faith into a something um in order for uh the gifts of grace to be given to us. Um, I mean, Luther has a – and I think that, that really this, this, this um, shying away from the reflexivity of faith or kind of reflexivity of faith on uh, steroids is really another way in which Luther magnifies Christ. Mm. We grasp Christ. We don't grasp faith. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's very important. The, the, the believer's focus is single-mindedly on Christ rather than my own faith.
1: I was so pleased to see in this book a, an essay by a Baptist theologian, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Brian Brewer, who teaches at Baylor University. And I really liked what he was saying. In a way, it's a kind of critique mm-hmm. of the way in which Luther has sometimes been seen in the Baptist tradition as sort of the, the champion of individual of freedom and so forth and so on. And he is giving a different reading on the priesthood of all believers, one that I very much
0: uh, resonate with. Um, so thank you for including a Baptist mm-hmm. among all these Lutherans <laughs> and Catholics. Uh, yeah, Brian Brewer talked about, yes, the priesthood of all believers. Um, and what he really uh, teased out of that notion in Luther uh, is its ethical dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh, the notion undergoes a certain amount of transformation in Luther's theology. That is, uh, certainly at the very beginning of the Reformation, Luther appeals to believers – to take responsibility for the state of the church, um, but when he is confronted with the more radical reformers, and sometimes people who are very theologically uninformed, um, he begins to perhaps shy away a little bit, or um, maybe tries to mitigate some of the more um, radical implications of the notion of the priesthood of all believers, but. Uh, nonetheless i mean it is it is certainly a very prominent part of luther 's theology in the sense that yes, our access to christ is does not require the mediation of the church. The gifts are for the people of God, and he emphasizes that very much and and he emphasizes god 's coming to us but I think what's what Brian Brewer emphasizes in, in his discussion of the priesthood is that the priesthood then becomes less a matter of my own sort of being a church unto myself. He discusses E.Y. Mullins' notion of soul, soul competency as a particular way of receiving the notion of the priesthood of all believers and 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 Brian wants to say, well, we should, what we should recover from Luther, what we should learn from Luther is that the priesthood of all believers has this ethical dimension of because we are all invited by God to receive God's gifts. What the priesthood implies is not so much the sufficiency of believer, but rather the fact that we pray for each other, mm. that we um, that we are responsible for our for the church, that we must take responsibility for whether the gospel is proclaimed in yeah. the church. So it's a it's more of a corporate. Absolutely. Um, thing. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's a, that's a very good thing to, 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 yeah. to, to bring up. He's spot on, I think, there. You know, very often
1: in the Baptist tradition, we speak about the priesthood of the believer as though it were one isolated individual. Mm-hmm. But the better, more, I think, Lutheran way to talk about it is the priesthood of all believers – we are priests to one another. That's a very important insight. So, and Now, you know, we're almost on the eve of the big celebration, the 500th anniversary of Luther's posting of the 95 Theses on the Castle Church door in Wittenberg. And there'll be all kinds of festivities and celebrations and lectures. As you think about that project in terms of your book and you being a Lutheran theologian yourself, how ought we to think about the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation?
0: I think uh, again, it's not a very simple way of thinking about the Reformation. Just just as we cannot think very simply about Luther, I mean, to some degree, I agree that the Reformation was a tragedy. Um, it produced divided Christendom in the West, but on the other hand, it was also a, it was also a necessity. I, I agree with Robert Jensen, who says that you know Luther is one of the few. Absolutely necessary theologians mm. of the church, um, and I think our reception of the Reformation will be um, will be like that. That you know we have the benefit. That is, uh, when I say like that, I mean it will be um, it will be complex. It, it too will be refracted, because we have the benefit of uh, knowing what the Reformation was about, not just when it happened, but we also have. What, uh, the benefit of knowing what kind of shadow it cast over mm-hmm. modernity, um, and there are certainly Catholic scholars today who talk about the unintended consequences of the Reformation. Um, I'm not sure that I necessarily um, uh, see eye to eye with all of those um, all of those critiques, um, but. I also realize that the Reformation, again, is a, is a much more complex phenomenon and, that, uh, and that, we should re- that we should receive it critically. That is, I still believe that it is something to be celebrated because the Reformation did have this single-minded focus on the gospel. Um, it was a movement within the church that sought to remind the church of what the gospel was and uh, make that absolutely central. Um, but it, it it produced its own set of consequences that I think we as those who inherit the Reformation should keep thinking about. And I, and I think the best way to celebrate the Reformation is to is to um, realize that it never had that kind of finality that it intended. Um, yeah. That we must that we must. Um, uh, reckon, with, reckon with it that we must think through it as its children that we must in some sense always carry it on and carry it on also in regard to ourselves um, that is to be reminded of where our forefathers were and what they fought for to be taken back to the roots of certain conceptions like we've just discussed the priesthood of our believers uh, the notion of faith and, and so on and so forth um, that um, so um, I think that's probably how I would approach the Reformation, something to be celebrated, something perhaps to be lamented a little bit, but certainly something to be received and thought through very critically. I think what you've just said is so very
1: deeply in keeping with the central tenet of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Sometimes expressed through this, uh, this phrase, ecclesia reformanda. Mm-hmm. So the church not only once and all perfectly reformed in the 16th century, but the church in a continual state of reformation. So every generation, we revisit these great doctrines of the faith. We look at figures like Luther. Uh, and we can receive all of this as a gift from God with, mm-hmm. with gratitude and thanksgiving in our hearts but also, as you rightly say, I think with, uh, with some caution, maybe with even a note of repentance in mm-hmm. our heart for some of the evil that actually came out of people who were trying to do very good things. Right, And we're not exempt from that ourselves.
0: I think also with the sort of thought that an ultimate recognition that we're not the ones saving the church ultimately, that the church has a savior. and And, mm. and the, the purpose of the Reformation really lay in drawing attention to that fact. Uh, that when our Lord and Master, as Luther says in his first thesis, uh, Jesus Christ says repent, he means that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance, uh, of recognition that, um, that we are a church of God um, and that any reformation can happen only by drawing attention and magnifying the way God works in the church. You know, we haven't talked a lot about the solas. We could spend a whole
1: other podcast talking about the solas (laughs) of the Reformation, and they're great. The Sola Scriptura, Sola Fide, Sola Gratia. but I think of all of the solas, the one that in my mind, summarizes and, and recapitulates the whole movement of Reformation is Solus Christus. Mm-hmm. It really is Jesus Christ alone yeah, agree. who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so as we get closer to Luther and the Reformation uh, in this way, I hope we'll come closer to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Peter, for this wonderful conversation and for this book you've done. hope it will do just great. You can get it on Amazon.com, I'm sure. Yes. From Fortress (laughs) Press, Luther Refracted, The Reformer's Ecumenical Legacy, edited by Peter Mawish, with whom I've had uh, a conversation today, and Derek R. Nelson. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Beeson Podcast. We are so grateful for your generous support and encouragement for our podcast ministry, which goes out to listeners all across this world. We would love to hear from you, and we hope that you will write us at BDS, which stands for Beeson Divinity School, info, I-N-F-O, B-D-S, info at Sanford, S-A-M-F-O-R-D dot E-D-U.